If you can exit, the providers behave. I don't need to exit Gmail or Outlook because in Gmail and Outlook, they broadly behave reasonably because you can exit. And so I am in no way against the economies of scale of big tech companies to be able to deliver high performance applications. What I am in favor of is that the network effects accrue to a protocol, not to a service. This episode of Empire is brought to you by Thales Markets, an options platform on Arbitrum and Optimism that gets you exposure to crypto in the simplest way possible. They've made it as easy as simply choosing up or down. You'll hear more about Thales later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Carbon. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity super easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit and range orders, all from a beautiful UI. Check out Carbon today for unprecedented control over your liquidity. All right, everyone. Very fun episode we've got coming up. We've got uh, Punk6529 joining us. Uh, i got another Punk, Santi, as always, uh, co-hosting with me. So, uh... I got you guys. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you. Um, so here, here's what we're going to do with this uh, with this episode. Um, obviously, I have to get both of your takes on punks right now. Um, Six five two nine. You just also had a big acquisition with uh, with the Goose acquisition. So I want to get your take on that. Uh, I want to get your take on a couple of different buckets of NFTs like PFPs, digital art, royalties, things like that, and just like state of like NFTs, how you're feeling about things. But I think it would just be very, very helpful to get your high level framework, right? I think uh, Facebook changing their name to Meta kind of like marked the peak uh, of the metaverse, right? And it feels like that kind of metaverse narrative has turned over. So I'd like to get your take on just like, what is your working framework for the metaverse today? And what is your working framework for like, why it's important that we build an open permissionless metaverse instead of this kind of closed metaverse from, from, from a company like Facebook? Sure. This is, I think, one of the most important topics in technology today. I think it is uh, misunderstood is the wrong word. Effectively, nobody's talking about it, right? And I think it's critical to what our lives look like, let's say, in 2030 and beyond. And in order to have a coherent discussion about it, I'd like to lay out some assumptions, which are my assumptions or my priors. I think they are accurate, but if someone doesn't believe the things I'm about to say, they probably aren't going to believe the conclusion either. So let me start with the, <clears throat> with the priors. First of all, first prior, the metaverse is just the internet, right? When I've noticed when talking to people who maybe haven't thought about this so much, they think I'm talking about some video game. We're going to go into some new second life and dress up like monsters and run around with battle axes. And they think to themselves, well, I don't do any of that stuff. Like my kid does that stuff. I'm a serious professional. I make uh, financial models. I manage groups of people. I'm a politician responsible for my town. I don't need this cool kid. It's great. I'm glad people play these video games, but that's not for me, right? And so theory one is the metaverse is the internet, and I'll come back to what that means, but that's important. And it's the internet with better visualization and persistent digital objects. And my view here is that from the early 90s until today, 
it has been a spectrum of improvement on these two topics, right? The internet's always been with us, but it used to be the case that it would take half an hour to download a low resolution 30 second video clip. That was pretty exciting. Wow, look, I can play a video clip on my computer and I downloaded it from some other computer. It took half an hour. And now, of course, you can watch Netflix 4K movies at a touch of a button. It used to be the case that doing live global video conferencing, you needed a big Cisco system, right? Like you go back far enough, this conversation we're having would have needed a quarter million dollars of equipment. And now it's free and available to every single person in the world in a wide variety of applications where you can real live video chat with people. And this pathway of improved visualization is not going to stop here. It's not like the end state of visualization is looking at you guys two-dimensional, a few inches square on my screen. I assume you're full-size human beings. And I also assume that in the future, I will be looking at you and you will be full-size human beings in my field of vision. And then this is where people say, oh, well, I don't want to wear those big, heavy goggles. No, no one's going to wear those big, heavy goggles. I mean, people might use those for um, special cases, but even those wonderful Vision Pros, no, I don't think anyone's going to really be able to tolerate them all day. But within seven, eight years, maybe 10, I think we'll get down to the size of a pair of thick sunglasses. And they will be not virtual reality, but what is known as mixed reality, which is a mix of reality, reality, as you see it, and augmented reality, where you see what's around you plus additional objects, maybe you guys in full size, and virtual reality, where we make the reality, reality go away, and we're on Mount Everest, or we're in a art gallery, or what have you, right? And so my view is, and you know, it doesn't, matter if this happens in 2028 or 2032, it's very clear it's going to happen and it's not going to take 100 years, right? So if you look at the research pathways, you look at the experts in hardware, we're about this far away and it's not one of those things that's always permanently this far away. It is very obviously the case that visualization on the internet has gotten better every year since the internet has been formed. So that's number one. Number two, I say this thing, persistent digital objects, and it's not a great term because I don't think it resonates with people, so I need a better, kind of more emotionally resonant term. But if the, as the internet becomes more visual, then there's more value in persistent objects in that space. And so well, what does that mean? Well. Your avatar in social media is a persistent digital object. Your, sorry, your profile picture, right, to use our terminology, PFP. But, you know, for most people, think of it as their, their picture in social media. And this isn't an NFT thing, right? People have had PFPs since the beginning of social media. And they use different PFPs on different services. Most people likely have a different PFP on LinkedIn versus Instagram versus I don't know, Tinder versus Twitter. Each one is a different type of audience and a different presentation. 
And will we also have three-dimensional avatars that are not just our face? Sure. Will we dress them in markings that reflect our identity, whether our identity is the New York Knicks or um, the Ohio State Buckeyes or um, Gucci or something else that reflects your identity? Of course. Maybe it's um, the Environmental Defense Fund. Right? People, people use markers of identity and community in every single aspect of their lives. They paste bumper stickers on their cars. They buy T-shirts with logos on them. They donate to their local uh, church or synagogue or mosque. I mean, this is very, very common, standard human psychological need. It's not going to change in the virtual world. But it's not going to stop there. Oh, some people play video games. Well, you have characters and objects in those video games. Some people like to collect art. And some people like to collect digital art. And if you spend a lot of money on a piece of digital art, you certainly hope that it is persistent. Right? Uh, I would certainly hope that the goose doesn't go away. Right? And it's certainly digital. Like the, You can, of course, create a print of the goose, but the default object there is digital. And so there's a persistent digital object. But it's going to go further than that. We will have our own three-dimensional spaces. Right now, we are in, I guess, Riverside. It's a podcasting software, right? And then we're in a fairly flat, black-bordered, two-dimensional space. I have 100% certainty in the future, and just pick, this could be three years from now or 13 years from now, we will have this discussion, and it's going to look like your office or your virtual office or my home or my art gallery. There's no, there's no technical challenge to having the space reflect the situation, reflect the use case, reflect your identity, my identity, and or all those things together for this particular discussion we're having. So. Let me recap that, and then there's something important to say. So it's just the internet. It's not an application. It's all the applications. It is the applications are going to become more and more engaging and compelling. And when you have that world, you will need things that persist from one moment to the next, right? You will you want your avatar to persist from today till tomorrow. You want your virtual office to persist from today until tomorrow. And you say, okay, well, that's still fine, but like, I don't do that type of thing. And I'm going to argue that everyone is already living in the metaverse or in the digital sphere already, certainly all white-collar workers. Like, if you're a white-collar worker, how many hours a day do you spend looking at your computer screen your laptop screen, your iPad screen, or most of all, your phone screen. And is it basically, for certain some classes of white-collar workers like us, all your waking hours? In those moments, where are you? Right? Like, I'm sitting in my office on a chair. 
I am putatively in the physical sphere, but not really. Like the things around my office, my eyes have focused out of them. I don't even, I'm not even noticing them right now. I'm looking at the two of you. And I'm looking at the two of you in a shared digital space. And I'm already, as you are, living in a digital space. And those digital spaces will become more and more compelling, more and more immersive, completely ambient around us. You say, this is great. It is great. It's better. All these things are huge improvements in the human condition, right? But the most important thing is every one of those digital spaces is owned by a corporation right now. Wait, so 6529, before you, I just want to almost recap that definition. Is it fair to say like in one or two sentences, your definition of the, of the metaverse is basically just the internet. It's the internet, but with full connectivity between all these apps, better visualizations and like better engagement of like, you, you know, you described this app Riverside is very 2D. So it's like the internet, full connectivity of applications, better visualizations, and then like digital things that you can basically own. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think the digital things that you want to own are an emergent property of the first two. When awesome. the internet was a text-based, um, very simplistic UX, there's not really any concept of how you would own on the internet, share on the internet a photograph, right? And so as the visualization gets better, there's more rich and expressive digital objects that you can, that you will want to have and own. So I guess then the question is like, why, why does it matter that these are on, like, you know, I've heard you talk about the, the movement from web one to web two to web three, right? Like, why does it matter that these digital objects are on a permissionless protocol? Like, why does it matter that this is a, you know, that this whole metaverse is built on web three rails instead of. I don't know, Facebook builds pretty good products, right? And Google builds pretty good products. So why, why is it important that they don't own the metaverse? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think this is the single most misunderstand, misunderstood topic in technology governance and regulation. And I am absolutely in favor of large companies building compelling applications. And I think it is important to understand the difference between how that happens on web one protocols and web two protocols. Web one protocols came out of academia, basically, or DARPA, academia, et cetera. No one really thought there was any money in the internet, right? So all of the web one protocols were released as open public domain protocols. A great example is email. Email is a protocol called SMTP. And is Gmail a superb service? Yes, it's fantastic. I'm very glad Google built it. And the fact that Google has built Gmail does not trigger this same negative reaction for me. Because if, for whatever reason, competitive, economic, um, my point of view, I don't want to use Google or Google does not want me as a user, I can go use Outlook. And if I don't want to use Outlook, I can use Yahoo. And I can go all the way down the line. And by the time I'm at the end of the line, I can plug my own email server into the wall and run my own email server. And the fact that the protocol and the applications are split creates a huge difference in both commercial 
and sociopolitical behavior. And I'll come back to that. Hold this. It's, it's so obvious, but it's never talked about. What's a counterexample? The best counterexample in the West is Twitter. And particularly, not Facebook, Twitter, because Twitter actually flirted with the idea of being a protocol. Um, you could see Jack Dorsey and Fred Wilson struggling with it in 2010, 2009, they were tempted that way. And obviously, you can see this with Jack. Jack's a big believer in decentralized systems. But by the time one could imagine how to do it, the path dependence on Twitter had happened, and it was a public company, and it's quite hard to change your whole revenue and business model once you're a public company. And because protocols tend to have winner-take-all effects, like we all use SMTP and nobody uses some other email protocol. And if you thought of Twitter as kind of the short messaging on the internet protocol for the English language world, at a minimum, then, yeah, it has picked up a very strong network effect itself. Like, what's the market share of the number two Twitter? Very low. What about the number three? non-existent. What about the number 10? Effectively a kid's toy, right, in terms of market share. So the network effects are around Twitter. Well, what does that mean? Well, the first thing it means, and this is not an economic issue, it's a socio-political issue. We have had a two-year national level battle about who is allowed to use Twitter which is effectively a battle of who can send broadcast short messages to large groups of people. And apparently, the way, apparently it's a very important topic because everyone's very upset about it. Whether you think Trump should lose his account or have his account, both sides are very upset about it. And apparently, the correct way for society to discover the right answer on this important topic is whatever the CEO of Twitter from time to time thinks which of all the governance mechanisms for the internet, I assure you this is not the right one. Right? Like I can think of different ways you can govern whether you think Trump deserves this Twitter account or you think Trump is a huge threat to democracy and shouldn't have an account. The answer to that question for sure should not change based on if Jack Dorsey is the CEO of Twitter or Elon Musk. Right? Like There's no way that a democratic society, if this decision is this important, it should be determined by the CEO of a semi-random company. I mean, Twitter's a big company, it was a random company, right? Like, it's just a company. It's not like it was founded by the state or we all have a stake in it. It's just a company. It was a public company, now it's a private company. And it's very easy to see by the big societal battle we didn't have. What's the big societal battle we didn't have? If Donald Trump should have an email account. Email is a very effective mechanism to communicate with people. And if you believe Donald Trump's a threat to democracy, right? Let's take any position on this, right? Well, presumably you shouldn't be able to email people either. But we didn't have that discussion. We didn't have that discussion because there's no one single email provider. And so there's not one place where you say the CEO of email has to decide if Donald Trump should have an email account. And, you know, I want to say this because, you know, it's a heated topic in the United States. But the one has to look at the principle. It is irrelevant if you like or don't like Donald Trump, right? The idea that someone, 
any someone, and it's easiest to think on email, can sit there and rank order 8 billion people and decide on any given day who has been sufficiently nice or sufficiently naughty to have access to SMTP is impossible, right? It is an impossible job, and it is an impossible job for the simple reason that humans disagree on things, right? You can have the Ukrainian view and the Russian view on who should have an email account is polar opposite, right? The Israeli and the Palestinian view is polar opposite. The Democratic and the Republican view is polar opposite. And it is not the role of a tech company CEO to solve every global dispute, because if a tech company CEO could solve every global dispute, we should put them in charge of the world, right? Like nobody's gonna solve any global dispute. So what ends up happening is you take a wide range of topics and somehow don't resolve them in some type of logical, democratic way. It's a random, quite frankly, oligarchical way. I know in the West we don't like to call our multi-billionaire CEOs oligarchs, but okay, that's just marketing, right? That the that a non-Western multi-billionaire is an oligarch, but a Western multi-billionaire is an innovative tech champion. That's just marketing, it's propaganda, right? It's the same person. It's someone with a lot of financial power who controls a lot of resources, who as a general rule should not also be given political power unless they've earned it in some democratic way, right? And so you come to the structure and you ask yourself, would it be better if we had one email provider? Would the world be better? We all have to use Gmail. Is that, would that be an improved outcome on any dimension? Is it better if you're a socialist? If you're a socialist, would you believe that it would be better that everyone has to use Google's email servers? And the only acceptable speech is speech that is acceptable to Google. Okay. Is it better if you're a capitalist? It doesn't matter if you have a better mousetrap, if you can make email cheaper, faster, more effective, irrelevant. Only Google can offer email, right? To me, there's obviously no theory why everyone should have to use a product from one company, right? No reason why. And these specific problems are obvious. The first problem is you will have rent seeking and you see that companies, the exact same companies that rent seek in areas where they have a monopoly or oligopoly, don't rent seek in other areas. Let's look at a very practical example. If you put your app on an Apple phone, Apple will take 30% of your revenue, is that right? And 30% of your revenue is a pretty high tax. It's higher than the most socialist country in Europe, that's for sure. Oh, look at these. Socialist countries, they're very bad. They hate capitalism. Well, okay. No, no European country is as socialist as Apple that takes 30% of your revenue, not your profit, your revenue. That very same company, Apple, when you use Apple for your email, does not take 30% of the revenue you transact over email on the Apple servers. Why? Because the second any email provider said, 
hey, 6529, you just did an advertising deal over my servers. You owe me 30% of the advertising deal. Would lose every single of its customers to another email provider who would not charge you 30%. And what we discover, the market clearing price of what percentage of your revenue a commodity provider of email communication should take is actually zero, right? That's the correct price. Well, they might charge 100 bucks a year for an account, right? Or zero, but they're not going to take a percentage of your revenue. So that's rent-seeking. And rent-seeking happens when you have a monopoly slash oligopoly. And a side note that I don't want to get into, like this is where competition law for physical products where we're not zero marginal cost runs into network effects and zero marginal cost digital products. And it just doesn't fit. Like, I am not saying these are monopolies by the way the antitrust laws are written in the United States today. But nonetheless, they have these types of effects. That's number one. Number two, it is, of course, a tax on innovation. I don't want to pick on Apple. Apple is a beloved company. But good luck running a crypto app into the Apple App Store. Right? Well, okay. I mean, that's kind of weird. Crypto assets are legal in the United States. Apple controls half the phones in the country. I don't know if it's half, but like a very large percentage and all the phones of wealthy people, effectively. And Apple has decided for a variety of reasons, which might be sensible business reasons for Apple. They don't want the heartache of dealing with crypto apps, right? Like, I'm not saying they're making a bad decision for Apple, but Apple has decided to ban cryptocurrency on half the mobile devices in the, the country. And, you know, I don't, I'm not sure the... Google App Store is much better. Well, that's weird. Why would a company get to ban something that's legal? Right? So this is classic. You know, it's a suppression on innovation. You might say, oh, well, it's not. It's crypto bros talking. I think, no. I mean, you cannot buy in-app a book from Amazon anymore in the Kindle app, which is the most logical and sensible way to buy it. Because Apple is saying to Amazon, which is a behemoth, <laughs> guess what? You sell a book on my phone, my phone, not the user's phone, Apple's phone, right? Is there any question an Apple user would prefer to buy the book in the app itself? And instead, we have to push people to go to the web browser and buy the book. They're saying, is this a big deal? I don't know. I don't know. When you see things that are obviously ridiculous for the customer, you know markets are not in play, right? Because if markets were in play and there were two ways, two places you could buy a book on a mobile device and in one place you press a button, another one you have to go log into your account and download it or whatever, obviously that company would lose. And then the third thing, the one that really bothers me, is, well, effectively they become corporate speech regulators. I want to be very clear what my position is. I do not believe the First Amendment applies to companies, right? The First Amendment applies to the government. I do not believe the government should force Apple or Twitter or Google to host speech that they don't want to host. I believe Apple and Google and Twitter and anyone else, just like me, if I have my own server and someone wants to say something that I think is obnoxious, I should not be forced to host it. It's normal. 
But effectively, the net effect of everything that I just said is in Web 2-ish protocols, because they consolidate and monopoly, become monopoly-like, you have the CEO of private technology companies being effectively the speech regulator. Not legally the speech regulator, effectively the speech regulator. That's weird, mm-hmm. right? It's weird. All of this is about to get giga infinity worse. I don't know if you were watching the Vision Pro, right? Impressive device. I can't wait to get my hands on it. How does it work, though? Right? It makes, you know, we, we've gotten to a world where we carry around with us a GPS device, a microphone, and a video camera in our pocket and stream, you know, all of this back to a company. But, you know, if you had told, I don't know, the Stasi and... 40 years ago, hey, can you get every East German to like carry a microphone with them everywhere and a tracking device so you know exactly where everyone is and know which people are talking to each other because you can see from their GPS and when they got in their car and if they're speeding and, oh, then take a bunch of pictures of what they're doing and put them on your server so we know what they did and when they're at the beach and and say, wow, this would be amazing. This is the greatest spy technology we ever had, right? And what's going to happen with these mixed reality goggles is going to make the phone look like a privacy-preserving device. Because the way the Vision Pro works and all these other things work, well, first of all, there's a camera permanently pointed in your field of vision. Right? It's not just there's a camera in my pocket. There's a video camera looking in front of me. That's how you do the overlays in AR. You have to see, you have to see what's in front of the person. That's number one. Number two, they're using biometrics. They're looking at your eyes, right? They are literally, if I look at your eyes and run machine learning algorithms against this, I can tell how you're feeling. I can tell if you're stressed. I can tell if you're happy. I can tell if you have diseases. And so on and so on. And then there are AI algorithms that are placing things in your field of vision, noticing if you're typing, clicking, etc. And this is effectively prototype one. The prototype of 10 years from now will have a coherent view of the world around you. It will understand you in the world around you. It will have a coherent view about how you're feeling down to the physiological level. And it will have a machine learning algorithm that is personalizing the environment around you to you. And of course, there's a version of that that's wonderful, like I'm going to be living in an exciting world, super customized to me. I'm going to be driving down the highway and I'm going to see the tulip on the billboards, not like stupid ads. That's great. That's fun. But also, I don't think it takes even the slightest leap of imagination to understand there is no platform more prone to abuse than this, right? Because all of that, and the example I give, and this is not a negative statement about Mark Zuckerberg, Mark doing, I think, what I would do if I was running Facebook, right? Except I'm sure more competently. If I asked Mark or Tim Cook, I sent them a pair of goggles, 
And I said, I'd really appreciate it if you, your family members, your kids, wore these at all times and streamed all the data of Mark Zuckerberg's field of vision and, you know, what he and his family are doing back to the 6529 servers. I said, you know, there's nothing to worry about. As you can see, my terms of service would never allow me to do anything inappropriate with this data. Would he do it or would I get like laughed out of the room, right? And instead, we are going to do it in another direction. And by the way, it might not even be like, well, are people going to care about individuals? Well, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that this happens, right? Like the Uber God mode, where you could see every passenger and where they are got abused, right? People track celebrities or their ex-girlfriend or what have you. So yes, it will be abused also at the individual level, but even the aggregate data is amazing. If you know, if you know that on average people in a uh, close county in a certain state are feeling a certain emotional state and what you can feed them in their field of vision is A, B, Z. This is very powerful. It's extremely powerful. And it's one directionally powerful. I'm I, curious, like, obviously the skeptic would say there's always a choice to leave Apple and use a different, I understand the nuance. There is no choice. SMTP you have multiple email providers and of course this sort of monopolistic tendencies that applications built on top of these protocols have people are always, you know, this aggregation theory is at play. People don't leave these platforms because it's convenient and they have network effects. So back to like, how does the, how does crypto web three platforms change that you have? Sure. They're open, permissionless. They're also not private at the moment. There's a yeah, huge privacy area. So if we could touch on that, that'd be great. Uh, let me hold that and come to it a little bit, but let me answer the first part of your question. I don't think we can leave. I am as pro-decentralization as I, you can be. And I use Twitter because that's where the whole audience is. And I have a choice from using the Apple App Store or the Android App Store both of which operate in broadly the same way. And that's it. What's my choice? Where's, where's the third, fourth, fifth, 10th, 11th phone icon that has a different one? There's literally, if I go to the tele mobile telephone store, there is no other choice. You know, I'm going to roll my own cell phone. I'm going to order my own hardware and run Linux. That's ridiculous. Of course you can't do that. Right? And so this is a, this is a fake choice. The reality is even someone who is very famously concerned about these things, I spend all day in centralized systems and the only ones that have true exit are the web one ones, you know, the web and email. And it's interesting. I think one of the things that's a nuanced part of this if you can exit, the providers behave. I don't need to exit Gmail or Outlook because in Gmail and Outlook, they broadly behave reasonably because you can exit. And so I am in no way against the economies of scale of big tech companies to be able to deliver high performance applications. What I am in favor of 
is that the network effects accrue to a protocol, not to a service. So in email, the network effects, the true network effects are in SMTP, not in Gmail. There is literally not a single alternative to SMTP. Everyone uses it. And so if you can get the network effects to accrue to a protocol, yes, are there some issues with centralization in email? Sure, but like they're an order of magnitude better, right? And since nothing, nothing is an absolute in life, it is a level that is one can be comfortable with. And I keep repeating this example because it's so recent and so obvious. Where was the long U.S. debate about Donald Trump's having an email account? There wasn't. Practically speaking, there wasn't. Now, one more, I think, concept that is a very crypto concept that I think is right. We don't own anything in the digital space. Whereas our instincts in a democratic country are very well honed that if someone told you you can't own something in the physical world, you'd freak out, right? Like we have hundreds of years in many countries and dozens in others where the ability of citizens of a country to have to own private property is considered a very important right. And if the state or companies told you you couldn't own private property, the reaction is horrible because the situations where that happened were like company towns where the you know, miners were kept in some form of indentured servitude, right? Or feudal estates where there was a local member of royalty, and yeah, you could work the fields, but they weren't yours, right? You couldn't have them. You could not own the fields. The Lord would own the fields, right? All our instincts are good when it comes to, if I said, hey, I've thought of a greater way, a better way to organize society. Me, I'm going to own everything, and you guys can just use it on terms that I set. And in fact, it's going to be between illegal and impractical for you to own anything. This would not win a lot of votes for my presidential candidate campaign, and I would correctly be thrown out of any civilized debate in a constitutional democracy, right? And yet, we do not seem to be able to make this leap into the digital space. In the digital space, every single thing is behind an end-user license agreement. You're a customer of someone else. But everything all your bank account? That's not true. Your access to Citibank.com is governed by the terms of service agreement of Citibank. And Citibank can wake up one day in a bad mood and say, please get off my servers. And the money you have in Citibank is not, of course, cash. It's not a bearer instrument. You're an unsecured creditor to Citibank with whatever the FDIC decides to do in the interim. You're, you're a creditor to Citibank who gets to use their servers at their discretion. The same is true in gaming. The same is true in social media. The same is true in um, office productivity apps. Whereas we spend, I spend my physical day 
largely around spaces and or objects that I own. I own my desk, my car, my art on the wall, my clothes, my home, uh, not my office, but someone owns my office, right? Not Google. Um, and for some reason, we haven't been able to articulate that this is just as important that you can have private ownership and public commons in a digital space. And here we'll go to NFTs and we'll go to the simplest, most clear, it's, it's important because it's not important. If I told you, I very famously tweeted about owning an Andy Warhol soup can. I own it. It's in my house. It's on the wall. It is a non-custodial piece of art. Look at how it's been turned around, right? It's not that Credit Suisse owns it and lets me use it on terms they decide. I own it. By owning it, there are a variety of risks to me and others. I could very theoretically use it to commit a crime. I don't know. Sell the Warhol and buy drugs. Highly theoretical, but I could, right? Nothing stopping me. I could suffer loss. I might not insure it properly and someone might steal it. My roof might leak and it gets ruined. And we as a society consider it perfectly normal and acceptable that I can do that. And any society that said, no, no, you cannot own an Andy Warhol and you cannot put it on your wall because non-custodial wallets are used for money laundering and terrorism and uh, unregistered securities offerings and for your safety, 6529, we are going to have to hold this piece of art at chase and we'll let you use it under these certain terms and conditions. And if I want to give my Warhol the same thing, I go, I don't know, well, let's see, why? Why? What's the reason? I need an explanation. You are default not allowed to do this. And if I said this about a painting, I would be like, this is a wholly ridiculous position for democracy to have. Right? Because it feels the physical world feels real to people. I'm here to tell you the digital world is just as real, arguably more important, because the whole economy X certain physical items, the whole services economy runs through the digital world. And so we are actually having a debate. It is a position in Congress by some parts of a major political party that we should not have quote unquote non-custodial wallets, that they should be illegal. There are parts of political parties in the European Union who also believe this. It is, there are days when it is like 60-40, whether the EU or the United States will ban non-custodial wallets, right? Which means they are banning the ability for their citizens to own something digitally. They are saying to their citizens, we do not trust you to own anything, and we need you to go become customers of some large corporation whom we trust more. And this is not to say that there is not money laundering in the world and that there is not crime in the world. Of course these things exist. But one of the fundamental characteristics of a constitutional democracy is when you have that slider that says 
On one hand, how much private crime can we tolerate? And on the other hand, how much state crime can we tolerate? You don't take the slider and max it over to the state side, right? That's how you end up with totalitarian regimes. And totalitarian regimes, in the end, cause much more damage than criminals. Right? Like, if you think about, you know, take the worst gangster. Like, just to be clear, I am not in favor of terrorists and drug dealers and other things, right? Obviously, I'm not in favor. But, I think but the, Al, the, Al Capone, right, it's a famous yeah. gangster. How many people did Al Capone kill? I don't I know, think the, the, a few hundred, right? I mean, yeah. The point you're making is, is really right, good, sorry. which is, I think this idea, like, you know, back to your point around, like, there is an infringement on the ability to own property. In this case, it's digital. And it's equally or more important because we're spending most of our lives in the digital context. And Congress or government should not have an opinion on that. And it, it, it's unconstitutional to ban your liberty to do so. And the second point is, back to your point on Gmail, you know, we don't talk about how much nefarious activities enabled because people send each other emails and may enable fraud or terror. I mean, I'm sure these people communicate on these protocols, but you don't clamp down on that. You don't talk about WhatsApp or like, you know what I mean? Like these pieces of technology are neutral and they facilitate communication. People say a lot of stuff, but, but having an opinion on, on those type of services seems like a huge contradiction because we haven't done so for this. It's sort of like a, we're drawing lines here between we, we don't go after the GMOs of the world, but we are going really focused on crypto. And so it feels very contradictory, right? Well, I have an even stronger view than you. I don't think governments should be neutral. I think governments should favor public protocols. Right? I agree with that. And, and all of the issues, like, you know, the EU does a lot of stuff. I'm like, oh, you need to have interoperability and we're going to have all these rules on all these rules for providers and they're very complicated and you need like an army of lawyers to do them. So the net effect of this, it just solidifies the big American tech companies as the winners, right? That's what actually happens. But in any case, the spirit of those things is good. Just the approach is completely backwards. The way you have interoperability is let the user own their data, let the user own their avatars and let application providers compete for the user. So it's not a question of having to beg the application provider to give them the data, right? And, you know, we're in the NFT space, so it's easy. I don't have to beg anyone, not OpenSea, right? Not, um, I don't know, on cyber, not the punks market, not Larval apps or Yuga, to give me my punk. I have my punk. It's in my wallet. I don't need anyone's permission to export my data. I don't need the US government or the European Union to mandate the Larva Labs gives me my, or Yuga gives me my punk if I want to take it somewhere else. I already own it. It's a better system. It's a simpler system. It's a system that is solved. We solved it with Bitcoin for fungible tokens and we know what, what is fungible in the world? Usually financial instruments, money and stocks and bonds and those types of things. And so that's solved for there, right? So you can hold you can hold a store of value yourself, and that's fine, and that's good. And with NFTs, we've solved it for literally everything else. And everything else you need in the digital world is oh in the digital world, your whole life is digital, right? Hard 
of the part of the major issue I think we have with the people at large and why we have not been able to create a groundswell on this topic is people haven't quite felt emotionally that their digital life is real. And it's partially because most people have not yet had some type of disaster in their digital life. But the disaster is going to happen. I'll give you an example on central bank digital currencies. What I think is going to happen, well, I'm doing as much lobbying as I can that doesn't happen. But it's very interesting watching the discussions of the governors of the European Central Bank. And not all of them, but some of them say, you know what's great about having a central bank digital currency, which is, of course, a permission system, and we are not going to, we're going to get rid of cash too, right? Some of them want to get rid of cash for the same reasons. It's not, it's not just they, they don't like Bitcoin, they don't like cash either, for the same reasons. Right? It's a worldview. They say, look, we'll eliminate crime and money laundering and tax evasion, all these things, which are all positive social objectives. But long before you eliminate crime, because no society has eliminated crime, Here's what's actually going to happen. Some political leader, I don't know, pick your least favorite political leader, Orban, before the elections, is going to make sure none of his political opponents can buy a tomato. It doesn't have to be permanently, it can be for like 30 days. They flag them somewhere in some unreviewable AML system in the Central Bank of Hungary. Suddenly their campaign grinds to a halt because they can't pay. And then, you know, 10 days later, oh, sorry, mistake, da, 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 da. That's what's going to happen, right? When you create the world's most in- attractive honeypot, being in charge of who can spend money, quote, unquote, Stalin never had that power, right? Stalin's sitting there in Moscow. You're somewhere in Siberia. You want to buy a tomato from your neighbor. It's literally impossible for Stalin to stop you. Once everything is on a permissioned digital rail, well, no, in fact, you can do that. And you say, oh, but it's still a lot of people have transactions. Hello, well, that's why we have machine learning, right? You can have our behavioral patterns, both in spending and in how we interact socially, are predictable. I'm 100% certain if you gave me the data of every single person's transactions and I ran a machine learning model, I could classify Republicans and Democrats. Not perfectly, but enough, right? And this is true in whatever your different political uh, groupings are in any country. And if you have that, and you have that at automated scale, and you can just freeze people's payments, freeze people's digital life, you know, there's a vague terror in the back of my head that someday my Twitter account will be suspended. One of our... Twitter accounts, the one for OM, the open mesmer, got suspended last week. I don't even know why. I have to go like, try and get it unsuspended. But why should I have that terror? I don't have any terror that my printer's going to get suspended. Right? No one can keep me from printing things and distributing posters and things in the world at large, right? But I do have like a vague terror that like, for some reason, not because I plan to do anything bad, I don't know, I'll trigger some algorithm, my account gets suspended. It's ridiculous. Why should I even have to think about this? Why should I have to think about who gets to decide what I spend on things? I mean, I can imagine why this would be a good system if your political beliefs are totalitarian. 
So I want to almost like sum sum up this first part of the conversation, which in my mind is like, you have a met, you have a metaverse, which is basically just the internet with better visualizations and these persistent digital objects. It's very important that uh, this is built on like open web three rails and open crypto rails and permissionless protocols instead of corporate uh, corporate rails and inside of these like permissioned walled gardens. And the reason for that is you don't want uh, the the end goal here is to have zero ownership, like zero counterparty risk of. Uh, of, of owner of like digital ownership, basically, there are going to be two places that you store your digital, your digital things, your digital goods. One is either on crypto rails, and the other is inside of a corporate service that could and probably will either at some point in time, censor you or censor someone you know, or will most likely just shut down because companies shut a lot of things down. Does that feel like a good way to summarize this kind of first part? It's great. And I'll simplify it. Yeah. There's two places you can store digital objects, in a database or in a blockchain. And databases, by definition, centralized, because ultimately there's a database administrator that can go into MySQL or PostgreSQL and change the entries. Right? So you, uh, the major innovation of blockchains is you have a database without one person in charge. So right now, this date is pushing us towards corporate databases, as opposed to public community databases, which are blockchains. And any properly democratic state should prefer the latter, not the former. This episode is brought to you by Thales, a new frontier in simple on-chain options. Here's what you do. You choose an asset, a strike price, and the market you want to participate in, and that's it. With its powerful and capital-efficient AMM-based architecture, Thales is able to offer low fees, automated liquidity, and effective utilization of leverage with no funding rate and known payouts. They just launched this new UI. It's super clean. Step one, you choose an asset. Step two, you choose a strike date. Step three, you pick a market and choose the USD amount. Getting exposure to crypto assets price action has never been easier because of Thales. Here's what you got to do. You got to go to thalesmarket.io, T-H-A-L-E-S market.io, thalesmarket.io. They're on Arbitrum and Optimism. Go play around. Choose a crypto asset, choose a strike date, pick a market, choose the USD amount, bada bing, bada boom, check out Thales Market. Let's face it, concentrated liquidity is hard. And that's why I'm super excited to partner with Carbon for Empire. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit orders and range orders. Want to buy a token when it dips and sell it when it spikes? With Carbon, you can now set a strategy that buys in on one price range and sells in a higher range on repeat using a single source of automated rotating liquidity. Strategies can be created for any standard ERC-20 token. I recently checked out the Carbon Beta that just dropped, pretty blown away by the liquidity strategies that Carbon enables on-chain. It has these rich trading features that you'd expect from a centralized exchange, except Carbon is fully on-chain, decentralized, and non-custodial. Just connect your wallet. It's CarbonDeFi.xyz. That's CarbonDeFi.xyz. Choose a trading pair. Set your buy and sell ranges and amounts. Hit Create and you're done. Carbon automatically moves your liquidity into your selected ranges as the market moves. Last but not least, I'm excited to announce that Carbon is running a ROI trading competition until July 11th. 
Here's how to play, super easy, two steps. One, click the carbon link in the show notes. Two, create a new carbon trading strategy. And voila, you are now eligible to win USDC rewards based on the performance of your strategies. LPs, it is time to take back control of your liquidity with carbon. Check out the link and get started today. Now, let's get back to Empire. All right, take me into your, so this is like really interesting conversation on like big frameworks for the metaverse. Let's go deeper into NFTs because I want to end up at this acquisition of the goose that you just made. I've heard you describe uh, NFTs as like N- NFTs untie viewership from ownership of art. So maybe just like, I'd love to just hear how you're thinking about like, there are these big buckets of NFTs, like PFPs, digital art, in-game NFTs, NFTs being used as royalties from kind of traditional like Web2 brands. What is your like working investment thesis and like just framework for how you're thinking about NFTs? And then that can lead us into this conversation about the goose. Sure. And I think what you described is my view on art NFTs. Before I do that, I want to note, I think NFTs are a very broad technology. I think NFTs will transport art. They will transport avatars. They will transport PFPs. They'll transport digital wearables, but they'll also transport in-game objects, brands, community identity. And then in time, they'll even transport off-chain, non-fungible objects, right? So today, why are we talking primarily about art? Well, because art can be natively digital, so you don't need any bridges to the physical world for it to work. And artists tend to be, um, or some artists, cutting edge and do things early. And it makes sense that the first person to try a new medium is an artist, not a big company, right? But I think in time, you will have an NFT that is your, not just a piece of art, but it is your NFT for donating to your university and for being a season ticket fan of your sports team and for buying 11 burritos in a row at Chipotle and for being your neighborhood pitmaster and the barbecue club, right? So NFTs themselves are not just art NFTs. Now, for art NFTs, I think NFTs are exceptional, and they're exceptional for the reason you just mentioned. How how does physical art work? Like successful physical art, you become famous, you're Basquiat, you're Warhol, right? Well, it becomes valuable, okay, great, which means someone wealthy buys it. Now, that someone wealthy can be an individual. In rare cases, a corporation, usually individuals, or then, or a cultural institution like a museum. A very common pathway is rich person buys an important piece of art and you know puts it in their house or even I know some very, very wealthy people that have a lot of art and even in the very large houses, most of their art is in storage. And they're like, oh, look, I feel good. I've bought this important piece of art. It reflects something about my identity. And then, you know, the years pass and you know, it's in their house. So the original piece is in their house Maybe there's like a picture of it in a felon book or you can see something on the web, but it's a copyright. It's not the real thing. It's not the actual thing that they've bought. It's a derivative representation of it. And the years pass and they get old and then they're going to pass away or they passed away. And depending on the pathway their life took, their kids auction it off and take the money, right? Or maybe they're more civically minded and then they donate it to a museum and they donate it to the museum often so people can see it, right? That's a very common pattern. 
I feel this art's important. I have lots of money. My kids are all set. I would like not my kids to sell this piece of art to buy another yacht. Like I think the people should be able to come to a physical museum and see. NFTs, short circuit, all of that. You don't need to wait till the rich guy dies, right? Because NFTs separate ownership from viewership. And even better, CC0, public domain NFTs, separate use from ownership. We can come to that as a more advanced topic. But even normal NFTs, most NFTs are issued under a normal copyright license, like, you know, the artist has the copyright to the piece. But let's take an art NFT. It is natively a digital good. It is minted digitally. And every single person on planet Earth with access to the internet can see it in as much detail as it was originally created. You have the real thing, the authentic thing. You say, oh, well, and I love this class of complaint. Well, doesn't that suck for the owner that everyone can see it? As an owner of a lot of NFTs, a lot of art NFTs, no, that doesn't suck at all. Like, my idea of buying art, whether it's physical or digital, is not to hide it so only I can see it. In fact, if I could take the physical art that I bought and found some way that like everyone could come look at it as well without having a bunch of random people traipsing through my house, I'd like to do that too. Except I don't know how to do that, right? Like I just can't be like, hey, my front door's open. I'm going to go in and find someone in my living room looking at the Warhol, right? I just, it doesn't work, right? So who sees, who sees my Warhol? I don't know. My 20 close friends will come over, right? Who doesn't see my Warhol? Everyone else. Is this a bug or a feature from my perspective? It's a gigantic bug. The Warhol's really cool. I'd love for you to see it. I'd love for you to see it without booking an appointment with me. I would love for you to decide if you like it or not. And I gain zero value, negative value, from saying, oh, I'm going to hide it from you. Even worse, there's a lot of art in, like, tax... Uh, efficient freeports, aka just sitting in warehouses. Nobody's seeing it. Even the owner's not seeing it. Right? What's that typical case? Oh, they don't have a place for it on the wall. Well, they might as well defer the tax so it sits in some warehouse somewhere. Right? I, I don't know. People have many theories about art, but I'm pretty sure there's no important theory about art that a very good outcome, which is a common outcome in pre NFT art, is that artists do their absolute best so then we can then stick it in a warehouse where nobody can see it. Right? That seems like a very bad framework for art. So, everyone can see it, but also, I can own it. Why, why bother buying it if you can see it anyway? Right? Well, that's true of many things. It's also true of physical art. Right? Like, why do you buy a piece of art? Do you buy a piece of art because you're going to get cash flows from it? No. You buy a piece of art because literally I didn't previously know what an Andy Warhol looked like? No. I've been to the moment many times. I've been to like, that's the original. I've seen the prints in Soho many times. You buy it, I think, ultimately, to express something about your identity. So can, things like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess, I, I mean, you just had this, I'd love to maybe segue that into this conversation about the, about the goose, right? So the goose was 
originally pu- purchased Postman for I think one or two ETH, if I remember correctly. And then there was this uh, this fun kind of I don't know if it was a bidding war. I guess you could call it when it sold for I think it was eighteen hundred ETH. Um, bought by Three Arrows actually. Um, I think it was Van Doe maybe bid like five or six hundred ETH on it. Um, but I, I remember uh, seeing one of your tweets that you, I mean, you've wanted this for a while and you just, uh, you just bought it at the Sotheby's auction. So big congrats to you. Um, you just bought it for 6.2 million, roughly, I think. was Yeah, the, roughly. Uh, plus or minus, yeah. Yeah, plus or minus a little bit. So I would love to just hear the story of the, the story, but also the like, yeah, just the why. And like, is this a collector's item? Is this something you're planning on flipping? Is this like a light, a light sure. hold, like your, your Warhol piece? Like, yeah. Let, let me come to that because there's some nuances in that. Let, let me finish. I think NFTs are arguably the socially optimal way to distribute art. Now, digital art, right? If someone wants to make a sculpture, NFT is not a great way to distribute a sculpture. And I'm not saying all art needs to be digital. But in the digital world, we're going to need a lot of digital art. We spend a lot of time in digital spaces. And so artists generally prefer that their art is seen. Right? They make art because... It has some meaning. They want to express a certain view about society. So is it better that everyone can see their art from the day it's made, not 40 years later when everyone's dead? Yes. The world at large, it's considered socially beneficial that the world at large can see art. That's why the public funds museums. If we did not think it's socially beneficial, we wouldn't have art museums. Right? And people both through taxes and through donations, fund museums because it's socially beneficial for even people who cannot afford the art can go see it. And even then, do you know how many people visit the MoMA every year? Like 1.7 million, 2 million, something in that range. Oh, really? I would have said like 20 million. Right. It's a tiny number. Wow. It's a number that's gigantic by you know, museum numbers but it's tiny by internet numbers, right? Two million is not a lot of people in the course of a year. Um, I just double check with I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I guess like New York gets 61 million tourists, give or take. So that's like, uh, not a lot. Might have dropped, let's see. So peak was, like according to Wikipedia. People. Not including like people live in New York, they could go see it. Peak, it says here, yeah, Wikipedia, I don't know if that's right, 3.9 million people, right? It's single digit millions. Yeah. Right? Even like, then, it's like less than 10%. Right? Well, but I think the issue is, like, if you want to see the MoMA, step one is you have to go to New York, and going to New York is a expensive proposition that for, like, 90% of the world is literally impossible. There's no chance. Like, you can't afford it, right? 90% of people cannot afford to go to New York. I mean, we shouldn't get mixed up by the fact that, like, Everyone we know can do a weekend in New York, right? Like, oh, absolutely. We're, right? We're a highly misrepresentative slice of society, right? So 90% of people can literally never go, and then even the ones that can, it's a nuisance. You have to fly there. You have to stand in line. You have to do all these things. And if you believe that one of promoting art is an important function of museums, the fact that one of the greatest museums on the planet has fewer quote unquote users than a fifth tier internet service, right? Is a bug, not a feature. And so with NFTs, the second it is minted, the second the art is created, and for the rest of everyone's lives, it is available to all 8 billion people on planet Earth with internet access, whatever it's not 8 billion, it's 6 billion, 4 billion, forever. 
That is a huge killer feature. And it does not impact the owner. This has never impacted me one bit. If anything, it's better. Absolutely. If anything, I can say, like, look, I own this piece, and I'm glad you can share it with me, and we all know that we own this piece. I mean, you know me because of uh, the tool for summer to You don't own me because of my Warhol. How would you know? It's in my house. Right? So... Yeah, I mean, the, I the, provenance, the provenance of it is, is huge, right? Because anyone can view it and no one can dispute the ultimate owner and the veracity and the authenticity of said piece. Like, you will own the goose. People can look at your wallet. You know you own that cryptographically. Like, there's proof that you are the owner. And there's also richness, I guess, in the, collect, the, the history of the collection of the NFT itself. You can go and see who has owned. The, in this case, you bought it from Sotheby's. Who, well, you, Sotheby's auctioned it but it was starting out, I guess it was a three arrow collection. And so there's some history behind that, right? Uh, and, and it's so all that's available in to and everyone. Itself. And it's all available to everyone. Right, you know, there's a lot of complaining from the art world about NFTs. I was gonna ask right? you that. A lot of complaining. And, you know, for a while the complaining was all like, Ethereum was boiling the oceans. And then, you know, Ethereum moved from proof of work to proof of stake, at which point Ethereum is obviously vastly more energy efficient than going to Art Basel and having parties and flying everyone to Miami and renting huge conference halls and boiling the oceans. But suddenly the people who were really concerned that NFTs were boiling the oceans when Ethereum was proof of work did not come out and say, cool, let's cancel all the art shows since now we can distribute art without burning any carbon whatsoever. Oddly, they just, no, no, we never heard their deep interest in carbon afterwards, right? Even though obviously the environmentally correct choice now for art is NFTs, not physical art. Right? I mean, they're vastly more efficient. Right? But I think the art world is acting, it's very amusing to see. It's acting like every incumbent industry that has ever met the internet. It is the greatest thing that could happen to the art world. You can expand artists, you can expand collectors. You can reduce the very narrow distribution channels of the art galleries. And, and sure, when you hit the internet, will there be things that you look at and be, God, this is terrible art? Sure. You know, when I remember an editorial once by the New York Times that said, this was in the 90s, who is going to be the editor of the internet? Who is going to decide what news is fit to print? And you know, for their worldview, this is really painful. We decide, we decide if it's important. What, we don't get to decide? This is very shattering to your worldview. If you have spent the last 100 years, everyone telling you that what the editor of the New York Times thinks is like a globally important topic, and all the news that's fit to print, they decide, not anyone else. And suddenly you tell them, well, no, everyone can print things. Well. You don't expect that party to react well to that. Right? Like you've taken them off a gigantic pedestal. And so, well, you're kind of just like us. And you know, it turns out that everyone can write whatever they want on the internet, and you know, that has some bad effects. But overall, exactly nobody is lobbying to shut down the internet and go back to a world where the editors of five newspapers, a few publishing companies, and a few magazines decide who can get words into print. Right? Like, obviously, society 
will be vastly worse off if that happens. And the exact same thing is going to happen with art. Right? This, just like we have a lot more written word, but a written word doesn't have to go through a bunch of extremely slow and painful distribution channels. Now that art doesn't need to go through a bunch of extremely slow pre-internet distribution channels, we're going to have orders of magnitude more art and all over the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And just like internet videos are Netflix dramatic series on the high end and like stupid YouTube videos on the low end and everything in between, so will art. And it's a wonderful thing unless you hate people, right? <laughs> unless like you think like people should not express themselves and that the point of art is to keep people from expressing themselves and you want to decide who should express themselves and who should appreciate that expression. And if you think that, and also think you're pro-art, I respectfully submit you're not in any way pro-art. You are just excited about your own ego. That's yeah. it. Right? I mean, ultimately, all this really boils down to, we have a new, new concept here, which is digital property, uniquely enabled by, by crypto, yep. and proving who, who created that, and who owns that, and that's powerful. And we should make sure and advocate that we have the right to do so. Uh, and, and the freedom to do so in the same way that we have the ability to own physical property. Um, and, and so I'm curious, and of course, like, you know, the art was interesting because like a lot of the more celebrated artists now in their lifetime didn't achieve any success and the art world has kind of had this inc- like innovators dilemma, if you will, the problem of incumbents. I want to get your opinion on the goose. You know, I heard you say that when you were bidding, there was, folks from the traditional art world, you seem to think that the second highest bidder was from the not a non-crypto native. Um, this piece is unique, I think, because it's generative art. And so the question I want to ask you is like some people, as it relates to AI generally, you know, how, how do you think humans will perceive art that is created by a machine, either assisted or fully created? And, and is there... Like, how do you think about the value of that and the perception of, of that and, and everything that is kind of art and the beauty of art itself, which is highly subjective? Okay. I've now stacked up three things I need to answer. Let me do the, briefly the mechanics Sorry. of the goose. Then we'll do your question, and then we'll talk about the future of the goose. So the goose was minted for around a point one eight or whatever it was, all ringers, in early 2021. A... NFT collector called Pixel Pete bought it for a couple of ETH. And then in summer of 2021, when um, the world really discovered art blocks, or the NFT world discovered art blocks and generative art, and you started seeing the separation in values from the top pieces and the rest of the pieces, um, Vincent Van Doe, who's a big uh, collector and curator, tried to buy it for 500 ETH and that offer was completely rejected as being, uh, you know, completely not appropriate, <laughs> very low. And the last week of August, 3AC, being advised by Vincent, offered 1,750 ETH, which is about 5 point something million then. And in that same August, uh, for the... 6529 Museum, and I'll describe the difference between the two later. 
I had decided that there were three very big purchases I wanted to make, or important, or important to me, or I thought important in the context of how I think about this. One was summer.jpg, which I succeeded at the beginning of the month in an auction. The other was a tulip, which is a very well-known Fidenza that looks like a tulip, and given we have spent our whole history in crypto with the traditional financial system telling us we're trading tulips, I wanted to actually be able to say, yes, in fact, we are. Here it is. And it's very beautiful. It's also a tulip. And you're right, we are trading tulip. I spent a lot of money for this tool. Um, and the goose. And I thought, like, the tulip and the goose were the two most mimetic generative art pieces. And I separate that from aesthetic fine arts. I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're beautiful aesthetically. And there's other beautiful pieces aesthetically. You know, aesthetic generative pieces, there are. Dozens and dozens that are superb, but most of them don't have also the capacity to transport through culture, right? Um, and we'll come to what I think this means specifically for the goose. So anyway, I find out, I wanted the goose. I find out 3AC had put an offer in, and I had just bought the tulip too. I mean, that guy was like broke. And I went and gathered like every penny I could find. I was hitting up my friends. I'm like, dude, you got to send some ETH right now. Get some ETH. Um, and I could get to like 1,700 ETH. And I was also 50 ETH short. So I was texting Pixel Pete. And I'm like, he had given a deadline of Friday, I think. I said, give me till Monday. I'm only 50 ETH short. I'll find another 50 ETH over the weekend. I'll go out and like panhandle 50 ETH. I'll find 50 ETH. And then he said, well, no, I mean, I told the guys Friday, like, I'm going to stick with my word. And then 3AC threw another, like, 50 ETH on it just to finish me off. And so it traded at 1,800 ETH, and I came very, very close. And, okay, I said, that's, that's a shame. Because I thought the tulip and the goose together would be really, truly incredible. Right? And two most mimetic um, journey pieces. But on the other hand, what I just said a second ago was also true. Well, I can still look at it. It's not like Suzu is going to go hide it in his house, right? Like, so, okay. I mean, I was sad, but like luxury rich person problem sad, right? Like, it's not like, it's not like actually like a real problem. It's, there was a theory and a thesis and it didn't work, but it's not like the goose was gone forever. I could still go on park walks and look at it. And, you know, maybe some days, that have gotten displayed together and do a show together, and it's just okay. From a social perspective, it was fine. And then, to everyone's surprise, I was just as surprised as everyone else with the events with 3AC. And as soon as that happened, I was like, like first I was like, good lord, like how could that possibly happen? And then later, my second thought after, like, good lord, how that possibly happened is, wait, I wonder what's gonna happen to the goose. So I have spent the last year worrying about what was going to happen to the goose. I mean, like, genuinely worrying. Like, genuinely worrying. And, like, I thought this, the original theory made sense. And I wanted, and through what I consider basically a miracle, I was getting a second shot at it. Because once a multi-billionaire buys something you want, your general view is like, oh, you're not going to get to buy it back, right? Like, that's it. It's gone. I need to move on to other theories. 
And so, I mean, I have literally spent the last year thinking, planning, trying to make sure nothing goes wrong uh, in terms of the news. And fortunately, we did a bunch of things and it worked out. And I'm very, 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 very happy about it. And I'm very, very happy about it for the goose itself. I mean, why is the goose important? So, and I know we have some people in the audience who are not generative art or on-chain generative art or on-chain long-form generative art specialists. So I'll try and explain because there's a reason it's important. So generative art is art that's generated by an algorithm. But with NFT collections circa a couple years ago, we, and generative art has existed since the 1950s. This is not new. There's wonderful generative artists that have wonderful pieces in major museums. It is a small but well-regarded part of the art history of our world. What is different with long-form generative NFTs is the fact that the artist does not know in advance what the pieces are going to be. So what the artist does is they release an algorithm to the blockchain. That algorithm takes in random data from the environment at the time that someone mints it. So every time someone mints an NFT in a long form generative collection, you have astronomical odds against that the same NFT will ever appear. Right? Like astronomical, it's not gonna happen. And so both the minters, the initial collectors, and the artist are engaging in some act of faith on what's gonna come out. You're asking someone to spend uh, 0.1 ETH or 1 ETH and then you'll find out after you press the button what's gonna come. And the artist has an even bigger act of faith because they're putting the algorithm out. They're putting their reputation on the line. And if the, the mints don't come out nicely, everyone's gonna be like, oh, okay, well, that wasn't great. Whereas if you're working generatively or the other generative in your studio, you work, 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 and okay, now this is good, now I'm comfortable showing you. So I think there's no greater leap of faith in art than on-chain, long-form generative art. And so you start with that and you say, all right, well, what typically happens? How are collections valued and then how are pieces valued in collections? Collections are valued very broadly and with lots of exceptions based on are the pieces are artistically, are the pieces in general artistically interesting and beautiful and people like them and they mean something, A. B, are the pieces across the collection sufficiently different one from another that it's not like looking at effectively the same piece a thousand times? And C, while they're being sufficiently different, do they still obviously look like they're part of the same collection? So, you know, two of the most famous collections are Ringers and Fidenzas, and they share all these characteristics, right? Many, most, almost all individual ringers and individual fidenzas are attractive in their different ways, right? One is more abstract and conceptual, one is more classically beautiful. They don't all look like each other, right? There are significant differences between the two. But also you have no doubt when you see a ringer or a fidenza that you're looking at a ringer or a fidenza, right? There is a very strong DNA running through the collection. And with, so this, this is what makes a collection itself appealing, attractive, and valuable. And then, and you know, I'm taking some shortcuts, right? We're talking to a journalist audience. 
But I think these are like useful, you know, useful ways to think about it. The second thing is within the collection, in 99% of cases, the things that drive value are some combination of aesthetic beauty, when it exists, and rarity, sometimes, you know, when the collection's not very pretty, rarity matters more, right? When the collection, rarity by here we mean certain traits in the collection. When the collection is extremely good, when the pieces are very good, rarity matters less. And sometimes you have both aesthetics and rarity, but in a collection that has genuinely differentiated aesthetics, the aesthetics are going to trump the rarity. And in some cases, it's the other way around. And this is the normal case. And I'm going to add one more factor, though. That is emergence. And emergence is something very rare. It is when the algorithm produces an effect that nobody expected. I'm 100% certain when Dimitri released the algorithm, he did not expect that the most famous ringer was going to literally be called and look like a goose. Right? You could rerun the mint a thousand times and you won't get another goose. You'll get various combinations of pegs and strings, right? The ringers is a conceptual exercise of how you can wrap, wrap strings around pegs. Right? And there's different numbers of pegs and different numbers of strings and different colors. And it turns out it's one of those like hyper exponential problems that there's like an almost astronomical number of ways you can wrap strings around pegs. And so even the project itself is a big nerd project, right? Like this is like, oh, it's a factorial math project. And it turned out that the average ringer looks really nice in a kind of minimalistic abstract way. And it's a nice thing to have in your wall. And for the lucky people who have like four or nine and can make a grid, then it's really powerful. And Dimitri always says this, that was the plan for the collection. And it's the default way to really show off the collection because then you can see the different types of ways that the colors and the pigs and the strings come out differently for each one. So if you're looking at a grid of nine, it's really interesting. And this is what the collection was meant to do and what the collection did very successfully except for the goose that went in a completely different direction, randomly, just luck of the astronomical draw. And once you see it, you can't outsee it, unsee it. It's very much a goose and an elegant, minimalistic, stripped down goose. So what, what's the chain of events that then happened, right? Well. The fact that it is a goose was interesting to the generative art nerds for all the reasons I just said. It's not interesting. If Dimitri just went tomorrow and drew, draw, drew a cow or something by hand, no one would care. Right? This is where there's a huge gap and people don't understand. They're like, wait a second. Why did this idiot spend $6 million on something that looks like a first grader could draw? Right? Makes no sense whatsoever. Well, no. The interesting part is not that it's a goose. The interesting part is this algorithm of pegs and strings through astronomical odds against produced a goose, right? And it's not just it looks like a goose, it's elegant, it's attractive, it's an attractive and elegant piece of art in its own right. And so that would draw the first attention, the first amount of attention. And then because of that, so that draws attention and then people start chasing it and it picks up 
A second aspect that you know, the reason it drew attention is this nerd aspect, but then it became mimetic. We know it's mimetic because if I ask you to name five other ringers, you can't. Right? What's the other ringer that you discuss by name? There's one that the nerds will say, right? The God Ringer. But even that, we're talking about generative art nerds. But what's the fifth one? The fifth one that you know by name? No, nobody knows it. Even I can't tell you. I couldn't tell you what like the fifth one I would know by name would be, right? And so then this becomes um, not just an important piece of art from a technical art sense that I can have a discussion with someone who's really into general art and why it was really important. It becomes a part of our combined NFT slash crypto culture. And then like as all pieces of important art, you know, someone asked me, I think a reporter asked me, is it more valuable because 3AC owned it? I said, no, the question's backwards. 3AC owned it because it was valuable. If you're a valuable piece of art, interesting people will try and own it, right? You will go on an interesting journey in life because you're an important and valuable piece of art. It's the, the directionality is another way. And so that's, I think I answered how uh, it got sold. So I think that I answered your question. I know there's another part to your question. This is why I think it's an important piece. And yeah, why Oh, and then you ask, oh, who was, who was the counterbidder? I'm not 100% sure, but like from what I know, I have a very strong view of suspicion of who it is. And it is someone who, as far as I know, is not uh, visibly active in the crypto space. Right? But he's active. No, I just don't, I don't, I don't know. It's a very wealthy person from a traditional industry. Is he based in the UK? No. Because okay. <laughs> I, I, oh, no. I, I do know someone in the UK who's like, he's um, or this a, a very large NFT collector. And you had no. No, 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 no I, I know who that is. That's not it. Yeah. yeah. But okay. guys, it's, not, me, it's, not, it's not that. Yeah. Not yeah. That. I, I'm curious, like, well, before we get there, like, uh, you talk about the museum, but right. you also have a fund. Correct. And I've heard you say, look, some of these things may not, obviously, you talk about value. And for me, collecting. I don't think about it as, as investing because I'm attached to these things and I, mm -hmm. I'm not going to sell them. I hope to not sell them. Right. It's been very difficult for me to get rid of stuff. I think I've only sold one NFT and it was a particular reason to do that. It was more like a attached to an investment in a metaverse project. Anyway, someone wanted it and it was, he was a huge part of the community. So sold it to him and the team wanted me to do that. How do you think about, and I guess what is the, the function of the fund. I mean, at some point you return capital, maybe not. Is it evergreen? Like, I'm curious how you think about these things in it from an excellent questions. Excellent questions. And you know, we have a sophisticated now for this topic, the audience is sophisticated. So we will describe this in sophisticated terms. The museum is what you just described. I am never selling this. And for sure, I have a bunch of PFPs in there from different collections. I'm not saying I won't sell a mutant day play, but that doesn't matter. The art there, is never getting sold. It is a one way, you go in, you don't come out. The museum is primarily my money, plus some close friends, some of them well known in the crypto space, that 
I harassed at some point when I ran out of money. You know, let me see. I was like, what, thirty million dollars into it or something. At some point, I was like, about to like sell, you know, my car and my house or whatever to an alternative to you. So it, there, there is a limit. You can never. <laughs> I hit my limit too, right? And but even when like one of my very best friends sent me some money, I told him like, sure, you'll have some small percentage stake of this. He says, are we going to sell them later for more money? I said, no. Are we going to sell the whole thing? I said, no, also no. I said, what are we going to do? I'm like, I don't know. But like, I think we should buy them. And so let's buy them. And he says, but like, I said, look, if you're going to ask me about an exit, don't send me money. Right? And so the majority of the money is mine. There, there's some from my friends. And they invested under the very unusual proposition of they will send me the money and I'm not telling them if and when I'm sending it back. Um, and the idea there isn't, the important part isn't the capital structure, right? The important part there, I thought two things were needed and were missing from the space. One thing that was needed is the space is a bunch of traders, right? Which makes sense because they came out of the crypto space and like, you know, all you can really do with like a bunch of fungible tokens is like, well, most tokens, sadly to say, all you can do is just like sell them among each other, right? Like, so you have this culture in the space of a bunch of NFTs were getting flipped at all times. And in some collections, I don't know, PFP collections, kind of who cares, right? Who cares if someone is flipping apes and monkeys and cats and dogs to each other? I don't think it matters so much. But when an artist makes a beautiful work of art, a photographer, a graphic artist, an animator, their needs, and I still have no, I'm not going to shame people who sell or trade, that's fine, absolutely fine, let me do that. But there needed to be at least one space, and I think now other people are doing it too, and it's very healthy. I say it comes in and that's it. Like, I'm not buying, I didn't buy the tulip or somewhere.jpg or this photograph or the next thing to hope like a year later someone's gonna buy it for more than me. In fact, on many of these pieces, it's hard to imagine who the person in the world is gonna value them more than, right? Like, I value them tremendously, I mean, emotionally, right? Not financially, emotionally. So, that was one. Number two, and this is nuanced, but I think it's important. I said, you know what's gonna happen if NFTs work? These things are gonna get bought by centralized players. That's what's gonna happen. In the case where it doesn't work, okay. And if these all go away, we're all forced into custodial wallets. I don't know. Crypto dies. I don't worry about that pathway of the world. I don't think it's going to happen. But if it happens, then none of this matters anyway. If it works, should these things be owned by Goldman Sachs? Should these things be owned by Facebook? Should these things be owned by... I don't think so. Are they going to use them to promote crypto-native values? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, a bunch of the financial sector is going to absorb Bitcoin into centralized structures, right? And Bitcoin, most Bitcoin does not trade on chain, right? Trades in centralized structures. And so you buy um, synthetic Bitcoin, right? Your Bitcoin on Coinbase is synthetic Bitcoin, right? Your Bitcoin in an ETF is synthetic Bitcoin. You don't actually touch the Bitcoin. I said, well, I mean, that's fine. I have no objection to Bitcoin ETFs. I think they're a good thing, but 
the whole point of all the stuff, the thing that motivates me, that gets me up in the morning, is that we promote things operating on chain, not decentralized structure around it, right? Okay, so the museum has another characteristic. It's going to live in on-chain spaces. So we started working on um, Open Metaverse, a protocol for decentralized metaverses. It has a ton of work ahead of it. But the reason I did that is I said, okay, cool, I have this now. Where am I going to put it? I shouldn't put it in someone's centralized space as its main home. Because the whole theory, the whole values and principles here is to try to figure out how to do things decentralized. And if I can't figure out how to do it decentralized, like when you tell me, like, buy a decentralized phone, no, I'm telling you, I can't do it, right? When you tell me, find a way to display NFTs and even the space you display it is decentralized, yeah, that I can do. It's work, it's effort, and developers and graphics, but it's doable. And so I said, okay, so the museum is going to solve a very specific problem. I want NFTs, and I want NFTs to be seen by the world at large and have a reasonable experience, and also not hit an Oracle database. But no disrespect went to Oracle. I want to be able to do it without hitting a database. I want to be able to do it in a way that you can come replicate it without asking my permission. So that's a big science project right now. I think we'll get there, but it's a big science project. And then the combination of one and two, that these things aren't just being treated as trading tokens, but actually as art, and art that in all ways reflects some of our crypto values. Anyone who's an artist in 2021 and 2022 in NFTs is one of us, right? They've somehow fought the gigantic FUD from their peers and came and minted a token. Right? They deserve permanent respect. And these parts of our you know, crypto-native culture, and despite in a crypto-native way, I think helps coalesce a culture that this matters. Because otherwise, you know, you can't expect the people who don't already believe in this stuff to think you take it seriously that these public commons are important and this crypto stuff's important. If literally everyone's just trying to dump tokens on everyone else at all times, right? Like it plays into the narrative that everyone's just here for like some form of gambling, right? And if all crypto is is some form of gambling, well, it's not actually societally important. And so who cares how it's operated, right? We need to build actual activities, institutions, communities that are doing something else on a decentralized blockchain than gambling their money. This is a vaguely controversial position in this field, right? Like, like it's right. No one's going to take us seriously if we can't do this too, right? Like, you can't say the, the societal value to crypto isn't speculating on tokens, right? Like, do I say we shouldn't have markets? Sure, no, you need markets because markets, you need markets to price things efficiently. But, you know, our outside of the very big tokens or crypto markets or NFT markets efficient? No, they're like completely absurd and stupid markets. Like, look, they're, like, there's, nothing, there's nothing societally meaningful in that the price of a board ape is 60th a week ago and 40th today and maybe tomorrow will be 50 and you know everyone's going to get their apes liquidated on some lending protocol now. And I mean, it's kind of vaguely amusing if you're into this type of stuff to watch it, but like, it's not societally particularly valuable. And this is the stuff that people see. 
This is the stuff that people who don't understand crypto and you don't get like three hours to explain them. They see this stuff. I'm like, wait, I have my law enforcement people saying money laundering is happening here. I look at this activity. The activity looks wholly ridiculous. People are basically gambling with animal, animal collectible cards. What's the social value of this, right? Limited. Sure, fine. Do whatever you need to in a law enforcement perspective to stop the terrorists. I mean, if I didn't understand crypto, I'd think this too. So it's important for our field for us to do things that are unquestionably not crypto speculation. And I think NFTs are a very powerful thing because NFTs and art NFT is not promising you investment returns, in fact. It's not saying, oh, look, if you buy Solana, it's going to go up in price. I have no idea if Solana's going to go up in price or not in price, right? But the narrative of if Solana is a useful, high-throughput blockchain is mostly lost in the narrative of, like, if the token has gone up or down. It should be $3 or $250 or whatever. Whereas you buy a... I was arguing with, well... He'll remain unnamed, but a prominent tech complainer on Twitter, well-known. And he was just like, oh, you know, basically, like, all NFTs are bullshit for gambling and money laundering and the normal stuff you hear, right? And I showed him, we own this Rafik Anadol. Rafik is an amazing generative artist. He's had this long-running show in the MoMA now. It keeps getting extended. It's the most popular thing the MoMA has done in years. And he made a NFT of the projection of light projection on Casablanca and Barcelona, UNESCO World Heritage Site. And there were like 50,000 people that came and then he turned into NFT and it's absolutely stunning and it's amazing art and math and what have you. And it's like MoMA level work, right? And I'm like, okay. So just because the ownership record of this isn't a signature on the back and it's a token, this is no longer art? How would it be no longer art, right? And it's powerful because it's a way to start telling the story of why crypto is more than financial speculation. And then I'll take it one step further. And what I'm about to say only works for expensive pieces. And for me to have this argument with people, I have to have done it. I can't just talk about it, right? Because a lot of people are like, oh, this stuff's worthless, they're tricking people. And I say, yeah, you know, I've bought several tens of millions of dollars of NFTs instead of buying, like, I don't know, yachts and vacation homes and things like that. And I'm pretty sure I haven't been tricked by anyone, right? Like, I'm pretty sure no one has, like, tricked me into accidentally buying a crypto punk. And what I tell them is the following. Do you accept as a matter of principle that digital art can exist? Someone say, oh, I don't like digital art. Okay, I'm not saying you don't like, you like digital art. You accept that like there's a category of art that's called digital art. And I think, you know, with anyone who's not completely ridiculous, you can get them to accept it. And do you accept that like some digital art pieces might be valuable like that? Here's one I paid a million dollars for. And the question I would like you to ask is if I wasn't, what could you offer me as an alternative? as how I buy this purely digital art in a centralized service that I would have confidence paying a million bucks for. Because the centralized service would look something like Google art database service or something, right? And have an email account and then sign up and 
they'd hold the record that I own this piece of digital art. And A, I'd feel pretty uncomfortable, even in the base case, spending a million dollars for an account on Google. To say nothing of the fact that with mathematical certainty, three to seven years later, Google will do some strategic review and shut down that service. And then you would have spent a million dollars on God knows what, right? Whereas I have a significantly higher confidence level about the neutrality of Ethereum. You know, might Ethereum literally disappear from the world? I mean, I guess it's a possibility. I think it's hard. I think it's hard for like literally all, all validators in Ethereum to disappear forever. And can Ethereum, is Ethereum in any way going to decide, like, we don't carry art NFTs anymore, we're shutting down that division? No, that won't happen, right? Like, I don't, it's a neutral space. It's a public commons. It is something where I don't have to worry. Maybe I like my piece in the future. Maybe I don't like it. Maybe it's worth money, but it's not worth money. But someone independent of me, the artist and the artwork, doesn't have a say, right? And if you're going to put real money into this stuff, you need that. And so a lot of this is a combination of, so I am a C-tier art collector pre-NFTs, right? So I'm neither like some big swinging, buying 10 million pieces on canvas, nor was or NFTs the first time I collected art, right? So I'm somewhere in the middle. And so part of... Part of my collecting is scratching that personal art itch that I had even before NFTs, right? That, that means something that's beautiful. And, um, when I was a kid, I was a pretty decent photographer. So I have a really soft spot for photography NFTs, even though they are literally the most illiquid part of the NFT marketplace. Like all those, I mean, like, literally. it's not like you're, I'm not going to flip them. Even if I wanted to flip them, no one's going to buy them, right? <laughs> you, you buy those and you, the, the ETH goes away and it's never seen again, right? Yeah. But the other part of this is I think it's important to send a message. And it's messages those things. Because if, if even someone as crypto-friendly as me is not willing to put some skin in the game and say, I am doing this not because I hope I'm going to have a return tomorrow, right? But I'm doing this for cultural reasons, well, then we'll never get there. I mean, people like me should do this. Other people should do it. I don't want to be the only museum. I want other people to do it too. It's good for the culture. It's good for people to represent the culture in something other than financial terms. So that's the museum. You said, oh, there's a fund too, right? So let's talk about the fund. The fund has the following characteristics. At the base level is why I'm more precise when I speak about the fund. The fund as it's structured today is a normal fund. It has a 10-year life. And the base level expectation is that it will sell the assets at the end of the 10-year period. Okay? That's the, the, it's what the prospectus says it's, and so on. However, many of the people who invest in the fund are also crypto-native. In fact, almost all of them. And one of the things that I keep telling people, and no one listens to me, but there's nothing more obvious. I think, in aggregate, I have brought more fiat into NFTs than anyone in the world. Over $100 million. If not, I'm close. But I think I'm actually the most. So I don't know that there's too many more people who know about what the 
psychological profile looks like of people willing to spend millions of dollars in NFTs. And I can tell you, none of them have just discovered crypto and immediately jumped into NFTs without buying Bitcoin and Ethereum first. You know, that English art collector you mentioned. Wow. Huge crypto exposure for a long time before that. Right? Like, it is a leap way too far to tell someone to expect someone who in 2023, 14 years after Bitcoin was launched, who has not had the intellectual interest or curiosity to go buy like 10 Bitcoins or 100 Bitcoins, you know, we're talking about rich people here, right? Never bothered to think about that. Who is going to somehow make the leap that Bitcoin isn't an imaginary hill of beans and Ethereum isn't an imaginary hill of beans and therefore a JPEG on a non-fungible token sitting on Ethereum isn't an imaginary hill of beans. It is impossible. I'm not saying like someone, some big guy will, will buy their first crypto exposure as NFT, but it is a vanishingly small case. So one of the things that I see in my Twitter feed that I think is completely like detached from reality is, oh, it's really important that we get non-crypto native money into NFTs. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen, that's not happening, right? Like what we want to do is get people into NFTs and then they become crypto people. And then, I mean, for nothing, no other reason, they need to buy ETH before they can buy their NFT on the blockchain. I mean, if someone doesn't know how to use a wallet, they shouldn't be buying expensive NFTs, right? But where are they going to put it? How are they going to use it? How are they not going to get it lost? Are they going to just give it to a custodian, right? So everyone is going to have, and you know, it's, I mean, there's tens and tens of millions of people in the world who own crypto. In just the United States, I think in the world it's over 100 million. It's hundreds of millions, if I'm not mistaken. Let's get the people who have already found it in their hearts to buy some Bitcoin and Ethereum and God knows what else, which is nine figures, I think, number nine digits number of people. Let's get them to buy some NFTs. So we go from 1 million NFT holders to 100 million NFT holders. And then let's worry about the people who aren't even convinced by Bitcoin. Right? I, I don't even understand what the psychological profile of this person is supposed to be thinks Bitcoin is a scam, but is going to buy a JPEG, right? I mean, who, 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 who thinks that? I've, I've never met anyone like this. I've never, I don't think I've convinced a single person out of several dozen, and I think I'm very compelling about NFTs, to give us money to convert it into JPEGs who hasn't previously bought Bitcoin, right? And so, and the people who are saying we should do that should go do it. I don't think they can. If they can, more power to them, and I'm very happy. If someone can go take people who dislike crypto and get them to buy NFTs, I'll be very, very impressed, and my hat's off to them, and they should go do it. But I just don't see how it's doable. I just don't see it. I don't think it happens. Now, why do I say this? Every single person we talk, took money from, for the fund, at the museum. For the museum, I just said, look, your money's in, and we're not selling it. So if you don't like this, don't send me money. We did not say that raising a fund, because that would be tricky, raising a fund. So like, give us your money and we're never giving it back. It would be an unusual fundraising strategy. But what I told them is the following. I said, we're going to have a fund, but my preference is and my objective is that we don't sell the piece. And you're going to say, oh, okay, well, hold on, how does that work, right? Well, I believe these important pieces, and take the loose is a good example. You don't think the best outcome for it is that it is later bought by some other fund or DAO or rich person. I think these 
NFTs. And I'm going to say stuff where I'm now heading into, wait, what's he talking about? Because what I'm about to describe doesn't exist yet. Okay? I just have a feeling it can exist. I think they should be in, let's figure out what the definition of community is. Let's park it. They, these things need to be community owned. And what I told the LPs, the limited partners, is I'm, I have a decade and I'm going to try and find a model where some of you, if you want to exit, you can. Some of you want to stay, you can. But then we keep the collection together. And that we're trying to put it together as a collection, not as things we're going to flip later. Now, unlike the museum, where I am in legal control of it, and if I say, that's not the plan of the museum, I, I can back it up. It's my decision. I don't have to ask anyone else, right? This, there's a step in between. And the step in between says, what does community ownership of a digitally networked museum, what might that look like? And how is it different in a digital non-rivalrous good that it can be displayed all over the world at the same time? And it, you can think about ownership in tiered ways. And how is that maybe different than what you do in the physical world? And you're gonna say, wait, are you talking about fractionalizing the pieces? And my answer is no, it's not that. I have tried fractionalization, not as a seller, but as a buyer. And I found it killed the magic. And I went and bought a little bit of, you know, there was that ape punk that was fractionalized, I think. I went and bought some of the ERC20 token and I felt dead inside. And the one thing that's true in NFTs, I don't feel at all dead inside, right? I'm like, wow, this is like reverse financial engineering. You take something and apply financial engineering and it gets like 20 times worse than it was before you applied financial engineering, right? Because owning an NFT is like fun and interesting and cool and owning a ERC20 token that represents 6% of that NFT wasn't cool at all, right? So it's not that. I'm pretty sure it's not that. Um, the design spec is what does a museum look like in a digital on-chain global era where it doesn't have to be rivalrous. That like, if the MoMA buys Bell Liechtenstein, it's in the MoMA, and if the Abu Dhabi Museum buys it, it's in Abu Dhabi, but it can't be in both places at once. The fact that it can be in both places at once, the fact that you can separate viewership from ownership, I think opens up a completely different design space that is today unexplored because as of two years ago, you couldn't do it, right? As of two years ago, that was impossible. If you wanted to see the real thing, the real thing, right, in quotes, you have to go somewhere. Here, you don't have to. You can see the ownership from anywhere and you can see the object from anywhere, which means we will make a network model. Don't ask me the details yet. I'm working on it, right? So, if you look at my thread, what I said is the following, and I will repeat it here because I believe in being precise. The rules in the museum are as before. I don't plan to solve. I hope I give myself over 50% chances that I will find the solution for the fund as well. And I have about a decade to figure it out. There's a lot of time in this space. And, you know, one aspect here is there's a lot of ideas that could be good ideas that are effectively illegal in the United States, right? Like most variations of fractionalization of things 
are actually not just like, maybe not nice feelings, but they're also definitely securities, right? Like, I mean, a lot of the stuff's security. You know, like, oh, I'm gonna gather a bunch of people and say, we're gonna buy NFTs together and they're gonna go up in value and the value of your units and the NFTs are gonna go up. And all, most, most versions of that, I think today's SEC is gonna say it's security. Now it's weird, like, should you be able to like get together with your friends and buy a piece of art? Yeah, I think so, right? But any type of semi-scaled version of that, I think, given the lens that SEC has today, is tricky. However, I do not believe the current approach to crypto assets in the United States is either correct or the final approach. I think an approach that says, in effect, if you're running an internet service, an exchange, and you want to reward your users with tokens that this is legally questionable, seems like a bizarre outcome for not just investor protection, customer protection. Do, so I suspect we're going to see over time some nuance to the regulatory regime for crypto. Now this hopefully is not hopium, right? Like, <laughs> um, it's obviously that time is not now and not in the next couple of years. Yeah. But I have a decade. So over the course of a decade, um, I think a lot of things can happen. Let me, let me um, before we, this has been an amazing conversation. There are two things that uh, I want to get your take on before we wrap this. One is uh, one is punks and one is crypto dick butts. So I will leave it to you to talk about which collection you would, uh, you would like to talk about here. <laughs> well, obviously punks, I think have a very special place in the NFT universe. Um, I've been asked many times what I think the punks institutionally should do, like as a, I am a well-known punks holder. And I think my advice was do nothing, right? Like, like most things I could imagine doing with the punks would hurt them, not help them. The punks need to solidify into history of what they were as a rather incredible piece of art themselves, right? Like the amount of expressiveness that is built into 24 by 24 pixel in the punks is off the chart for something. I mean, like it's, they are, you look at PFPs with many, many more pixels and they don't give the same feels as the punks do, right? So it's really an incredible work of art in addition to the first really successful PFP collection and the crypto native culture and all these things. So my hope for the punks is that um, they are basically left alone, because if they're basically left alone, I think in time they will achieve, and I don't think an actual word is the right word here, they, they will um, become recognized by more people for what they actually are. Um, and I think what they are is important. Yeah. Um, yeah the, reason I, the reason I ask, I've, I've <clears throat> talked to Santi a lot about this. I remember... Um, like height of the bull market, I was like, if we ever get into like a raging bear market again, I'm buying a punk. And here we are. And I think the I think the floor of punks are what, Santi, you probably know, but probably around 50 ETH, I'd say. Um, and I think they've probably they've probably held up better than any other collection out there. Um, but I, you know, what is what is 50 ETH today? Probably around 100 dollars Ninety-five thousand dollars. So is that a bear market too? You should buy a punk. Yeah. One of my predictions last year was <clears throat> that apes would uh, never kind of surpass the floor of punks. I was wrong. 
temporarily. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's an iconic collection, yeah. no question. And it arguably makes it less iconic the more you add utility, which is, I think, something that most people yeah. kind of just are lost. Uh, no no utility to the punks. The punks never had, got where they got without utility and like nothing, nothing yeah. will be helped by adding utility to the punks. People should go out and look, yeah, you know, Veblen goods. Yeah. Less utility, the better. <laughs> and 6529, I, I mean, I, like a lot of the, um, there have been a couple like big themes that you've talked about as you've, that, that you've woven through um, in this conversation in the last two hours. And one of them is memes and just like the power of memes, obviously. And um, I think I've seen you tweet a couple times about, about Dick Butt. So would love to just get, I know it's a, for people not in crypto listening to this, that almost feels comical to talk about, but would love to hear like, your thesis around around the DBs? Um, yeah, look, the crypto dick butts are super fun. And I think the uh, semiotics, the aesthetics, the, uh, something like that, of them, is a very deliberate, I don't take myself seriously. Right? And so the message is not strictly speaking about dicks and butts, right? And, you know, if someone sees it, the naive view, you come from outside, you're like, okay, these people are just being like super crude, right? But like, it's just the reverse psychology inside joke of like, I am not showing a Veblen good. Oh, look, here's this. I'm going out as a Santi, right? With a multi-hundredth PFP. That's like, Sure, countercultural in some way, but nonetheless, within this space, not countercultural, right? It's it's the blue chip, whatever you want to call it, right? And the crypto dickbots are like, no, I am going to actually present myself in the most like absurd way possible. Like, and it's one of these things, it's like peacocks growing big tails, right? Like it's actually I can afford if I can afford to present myself this way and take the theoretical social pain of that, then that's actually a sign of fitness. Oh, I mean, maybe this, I'm like ruining the whole crypto dick butts funness by saying this. But I think it's that, right? It's just don't take yourself seriously. And that's why they work. And they're super fun. And honestly, I, I mean, they are accessible, right? They're still accessible. What are they, like one ETH or something? Yeah. It's interesting. I think they have somehow more cultural power than their metrics. They don't have very many holders, I think, because like the people who get into them get obsessed. Right? Like people get into them and they're like, unlike punks where a lot of people buy one, right? Except for the early holders. I think people, once they start buying crypto dick butts, it's like lays chips. Like there's a lot of people that want like five and ten and fifteen and twenty and thirty. So what the collection's five thousand something, and there's I don't know sixteen hundred holders, if I remember correctly, seventeen hundred. So it's small, not a lot, not a lot of people, and they're not particularly highly valued in aggregate, right? Like the the floors are very high, the totals are very high. So if you looked at them purely on holder or financial metrics, you would say it's not a very successful or important collection, but they have substantially more social capital than those metrics and um, more mimetic capital and you see them on the feed and you asked me about them and you didn't ask about, you know, they are the 63rd most valuable collection, right? 
and the punks are the most valuable collection. And I think this is a reflection of how the social capital of the crypto butts somehow exceeds them that you asked me about the first and 63rd most valuable collection. Hmm. So I've, I've always found this an interesting uh, situation with the crypto. And just, just to be clear, I never make price prediction about anything. This is not, oh, look, they're undervalued. No, they're, this has always been the case with crypto butts. You see them on the feed, but no one goes and buys them. And so, the, and the reality is, I think there's only a certain number of people or type of people who are willing to put them out publicly. Right now, 1,869, from what I can see. Um, I'll say this. I'll tell you my last thoughts are the following. We're very, 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 very super early in NFTs. Everyone's theories are likely wrong. The space is tiny. It reminds me of Bitcoin 2013 and now we're in 2014. I have no idea if crypto markets go up or down, but certainly early stage crypto has seen more severe and long bear markets than this. Everyone's complaining about the NFT bear market. No, there's people around and they're tweeting and they're doing stuff. A real bear market, everyone goes home, there's nothing happening. Right? Like that's like the the definition of a bear market isn't anger or sadness, it's indifference. Right? And so I don't know. It could get better, it could get worse. Um I think a lot of business models in NFTs are broken. They are designed on exclusivity. Um but they're prematurely optimized. Right? A lot of the 10K PFP collections that have groups of two or three or 5,000 holders who have sold their holders on the idea that it was very exclusive, that's fine. And that could be fine for an art collection like the punks, but you can't really expand it then, right? Like the pathway to expand is difficult for a lot of these. And we have to expand. You know, I sometimes get crap from the feed on like, well, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Look, because right now we're nothing, right? A group of a few thousand people is like a Facebook group. It's not a competitor to Facebook. It's like one community group on Facebook of which there are like tens and tens and tens of thousands, right? You know, the stat that always sticks in my mind, Rolex sells a million Rolexes a year. Average price on a $12,000, what's that, six ETH? If I told you I have a new NFT collection, supplies a million dollars a year, and I expect to sell them at six ETH, you'd say this is the most ridiculous thing in the world, right? But that's, you know, the high end of identity, luxury, consumption, blah, 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 blah. So we have a long way to go. Most theories are going to be wrong. People should try a bunch of different things. But we do have to focus on getting non-financial messages out, and also um, getting more people in. Like politicians aren't gonna care if there's a million of us. It's not gonna matter. So I'll stop there since I know you have to go and I've been talking constantly. So um, thank you for giving me the floor. As a very quick follow-up, um, and um, what, is, what are your thoughts on something like Louis Vuitton, for instance, using the Ethereum protocol to issue their NFTs and as a mechanism of I mean, 
would you be are you positive from an onboarding perspective because at the end of the day you know they're still using a credibly neutral protocol to settle this digital kind of property i mean they oh 100 percent. i'm not i'm not even like 60 40 on this i'm like a hundred percent like yeah. if we say this is this is like saying do i feel comfortable that louis vuitton uses smtp and tcp ip or should they go use some centralized internet transport service because I don't want them polluting the decentralized one? The whole point, the way you win the network effect game is to get everyone to use your protocol. Right. So this idea of like people yelling at Adidas or Louis Vuitton or whatever for using Ethereum is literally the exact opposite of what we're doing. Everyone should come along. I want Walmart to use it. I want like Chipotle to use it. I want everyone to use it. Doesn't mean you should buy, spend $41,000 on a Louis Vuitton Trunk, but quite frankly, if you have forty-one thousand dollars to spend on Louis Vuitton trunk, you don't need my financial advice anyway, right? Like, you're. This is not like any normal person's problem, right? It's a rich person's problem. So if rich people want to spend forty thousand on a Louis Vuitton trunk, just like if I want to spend a million dollars on NFT, who cares? Why is this anyone's problem, right? Like, freedom so, to transact. So yeah, the freedom to transact. Them. Yeah, and own. Well, fellow punk holder. Uh, most people at, at the very beginning thought we were the same. You are far more uh, nuanced and intellectual. And uh, for anyone out there who still has any modicum of doubt, he is a man of his own and much smarter than I am. So really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on the pod to share your views. And it's been a real treat. Um, so um, thanks again for, for everyone. And I think our listeners really enjoy it. Well, thank you both for having me. Um, I think we're all on the same team here. And I think everyone is doing great work in the same direction. Agreed. Well said.